great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is a registered dietitian, and I think he's really one of the most incredible plant-based dietitians that you've never heard about, probably. And I almost never heard about him either. It was actually, I believe, at the San Francisco Veg Fest that Bob Hopfazel, who was a previous guest on the show, he is a plant-based book publisher from Book Publishing Company, has this table. He has hundreds of books, all his authors. And I found this book on the table, and I bought it really just because I thought the title was clever. It's called Drop the Fat Act and Live Lean. And it had these hilarious cartoons in it and I didn't know anything about it. And I, I loved this book and I sought out the author and actually it's only my third time, like in my life talking to him. Once I met him at the Colorado Veg Fest, he, was a, he gave a great talk and I interviewed him a couple of years ago and that interview is just as good today as it was then. So let's see what he's been up to. I hear he's writing a new book and he has another book that's absolutely free that I'm going to show you how to get on his website. It's his wedding anniversary today. So thank you for doing this. Please welcome Ryan Andrews. Yeah, Chef AJ, thank you. It's good to see you again. Well, I uh, yeah, I remember having such a good conversation with you back at the Colorado Veg Fest. I'm so excited we well, stayed in touch. I, I just don't know why everybody, I mean, you're, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful dietitians, plant-based dietitians, but you are just like, I just think you're one of the best and you're so articulate and you just, you, I, I, maybe it's because you're on the same page as me. Dr. Goldhammer always says, I assess somebody's intelligence by how much they agree with me. But, but really this book is everything. I don't think anything really has changed much in the last nine years since you wrote it in terms of weight loss. Has it? Uh, a lot of it holds up. Um, I mean, in terms of some of my language and how I wrote it, because I originally wrote that, I mean, 08, 09, and then it was published, I think, 2012. So some of how I see things and how I uh, approach some things are a bit different, but the basic tenets uh, hold up. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Well, I think one of the most profound things that you said, and I think about this all the time, is somebody's weight is a reflection of how they live their life. Yeah, I see body weight is more of a byproduct um, rather than something to really focus on. I mean, if we live in a certain way, eat in a certain way, move in a certain way, sleep in a certain way, I'll go down the list. For the most part, we're probably going to have a body that reflects that way of living. Um, the, the kind of bummer though, is that in the United States, so much of our lives have been shaped to be overweight and to be unhealthy. So if we're just kind of going along, going through the motions and living how most Americans live, probably not going to have a lot of uh, beneficial, healthy outcomes from that. You're, you know, when I look at your website, which I'm posting a link for, and I'll tell people how they can get the free book, you've got some very impressive credentials, uh, uh, you know, two graduate degrees, undergraduate degree, and you have a registered dietitian from John Hopkins School of Medicine, and, and just, it goes on and on. So wh what is it that you're doing now? Because I know last time we talked, you were trying to do something with kids. I don't know if you're still doing that, but I think you're and how did you get into the plant-based space? Is it just because obviously dietetic school, they don't teach you how to be a plant-based dietitian. You have to learn that one on your own. Yes. So yeah, your two questions are actually kind of intertwined. Um, back, I mean, I originally got into the world of nutrition many, many years ago in my teens. And it was because I was a competitive bodybuilder. And then I got out of competitive bodybuilding, went to graduate school, started, started to learn more about nutrition. And that's when... I started to discover the world of vegetarian and plant-based eating. And that originated from a concern about um, animal testing, like lab animal testing. So uh, from there, over the next 
now, I don't know, 15 years or so, my perspective just continues to widen, I would say, each year when I'm thinking about food and the food system. So initially it was me and my physique and winning a bodybuilding contest. And then later it was about how animals are being treated in the food system. And then later it was about farm workers in the food system. And then it was about just how really the entire planet, soil, water, air, and how we produce food, how all of that influences the planet. So this has led me from really working in counseling and writing and helping people with behavior change a lot around weight management to focusing a bit more about like how we can integrate personal and planetary health. So how can we eat in a way that not only benefits our health, our weight, our well-being, but can also benefit all these other things, animals, farm workers, the future of the planet. So that's really been my focus the last few years. And uh, I've been doing a lot of teaching. I was working with kids. I was doing actually cooking classes with middle schoolers. And that was great. I, I, I don't know if I have the nervous system that could sustain that for a long time. So I had to, had to phase out of that over the last six months. But uh, I work, do teach some classes at Purchase College. Um, doing some counseling still on the side, some media work, a lot of speaking and writing, working on a, a new book about this topic right now. So that's really, that's really my thing. I mean, the food system is just causing so much suffering and not only to our health, but to, to workers and animals and the whole planet. So I want to help alleviate that suffering. Absolutely. Before we get into the new book, I just want people to know they can get a free copy of the ebook on your website and I'll be posting the link and I'll also tell them how to get this book on Amazon. But when you said you work with people to help them uh, affect behavioral change, do you work one-on-one -on -one with people? Can people book an appointment with you? Or are you working still with precision nutrition? How is that going? For many years, I was doing coaching with precision nutrition, worked with a lot of different people and it was, uh, um, wonderful experience. Over the past few years, I do one-on-one -on -one counseling with people, a very small group though. I don't want that to be a big chunk of my professional time. So I usually have about three to five clients at a time. I, I try to reserve it for people who are kind of thinking about their food choices a little bit more broadly. So if they're working on integrating and thinking about where they're sourcing their food along with their health, that's usually kind of a good client match for me. But um, yeah, so about three to five people at a time I'm working with. Could people contact you through their website if they wanted to work with you personally, if you resonated with them or something? Yeah, like definitely. And it, even if we don't end up working together one-on-one, -on -one, uh, I can probably direct you in, in a certain direction with another dietitian or a resource or something that would be useful for where you're at. You talk about behavioral change and how do, you know, that that's one of the reasons I stopped coaching. I'm not a psychologist and I'm like Dr. Goldhammer. Here's what you do, do it. But I realized even though people know what to do, they don't always do it. Yeah. Knowledge doesn't translate into behavior change. That was one of the shocking discoveries I learned after I finished all my schooling. I thought that it was just, we have this massive lack of knowledge and like a knowledge deficiency. And once I provide this knowledge, it will solve all of our, our issues in the food system. And that's, that's so far from being true. It, I'll say this about behavior change. Um, I've really come to respect all the different factors that play into our food choices. So I used to think, oh yeah, you just, it's knowledge and then you act on that. But it's knowledge, it's who we live with, it's how we were raised, it's the city and country we live in, it's our heritage, it's countless factors that contribute to the, what we put on our plate. 
So if you're working with somebody as a coach with behavior change, I think when you can really step back and respect all of those and can and consider all those when you're working with somebody, it's really helpful. I mean, because if you just ignore them and shove them off to the side, and then you just focus on macros and food choices, eh, probably not going to get very far. Right. But, but you, you have to do both, don't you, Ryan? Because you can't just change their behavior if they're still eating crap and keeping crap in their house. I mean, that, that can't be easy. All right. And that's, and that's why I think it, you, it's about addressing kind of each of those different factors and variables. Um, and hopefully as you go through and modif- start to modify some of these things, or at least recognize some of these things, it can lead to changes in what you eat, which is ultimately a very, very powerful thing for, like I said, everything or disease prevention, the planet, everything. So you don't have a title for your new book, but you, you kind of mentioned what it's about. What can you talk about it a little bit? What it's about, when it's going to be out? How is it different from the last book? Yeah, I, I really want to make um, sustainable eating, eating in a way that's better for animals, the planet, workers, really accessible to everyone. And I want to acknowledge how important the, the plant-based eating aspect is with it, but I don't want to exclude people who aren't eating a fully plant-based diet. And that was, a, that was something I really wanted to focus on with this one, because a lot of, over the last several years, my focus has been the vegetarian world, the vegan world. That's great. I love that world. It has had a huge influence on how I see the food system. But uh, for whatever reason, a lot of people aren't going to take that, draw a line and say, I'm going to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. And that's fine. And you don't necessarily need to in order to make choices that are better for animals, workers, and the planet. One of the big things is uh, just simply decreasing the amount of animal foods you consume. I mean, the average American's eating about seven ounces of meat and fish per day. That's, that's an amount that is driving all sorts of exploitation. And if we can get that below three ounces, we could potentially do that in a more sustainable way. So that'd be a pretty big change for a lot of people, but not a huge change for others. So in this new book, I not only talk about that, uh, the plant-based aspect of it, but I also talk about how critical food waste is both on a personal level, if we're wasting food in our own kitchen, that's a problem. And then more on a societal level, grocery stores, restaurants, things like that. I also talk about no matter the food you're eating, plant food, animal food, whatever it is, the farm it comes from is absolutely critical. How that food was produced uh, has a massive influence on the planet. And uh, another big aspect I talk about, and there's only two more, I won't keep going on for like 30 aspects to consider. There are five big ones I've limited it. I've limited this to, um, the fourth is simply eating a wider variety of minimally processed foods, because when farmers are able to really grow a wide variety of crops, this can be a really good thing for pollinators and for soil microbes and give them diversified income sources and things like that. Plus it's really good for our health. And finally, the last big one is minimizing single-use plastics. Plastic uh, beverage containers, food packaging, it's a massive planetary burden. So those are those are some of the things I touch on in the new book. Yeah, I, I agree with you on all of them, but I'm thinking like, how are we going to get these, how are we going to shift these people? Because, you know, you would think that the pandemic, which was caused by eating animals, would have scared people into maybe eating less meat. But yet when the pandemic was in its height, 
that's what was gone from the grocery store. All that was left was the fruits and vegetables. The pandemic's been really interesting. I, I, I think it's hard to say right now exactly what the effect is going to be widespread in the U.S. on our food choices. But I mean, it's an event that has really connected all the dots with, with food. So the people that seem to be suffering more ill effects from this virus are people who are generally unhealthy. So that connects it directly to our diet. And then how a lot of these uh, uh, viruses are now being transmitted are zoonotic transmission. So it's uh, from the animal kingdom. So it's kind of this, we, if we want to prevent the odds of these pandemics happening in the future, we need to change how we're raising animals in the food system. If by chance another pandemic does happen in the future, and it's a zoonot of zoonotic origin, uh, we're going to need to change how we eat in order to be healthier to withstand some of the, the effects of the virus. So I, I don't know if people are connecting all those dots. Um, I, I surely am thinking about those things. They're top of mind for me. I, and hopefully I can get out there and talk more about it and write more about it so people can, can think about those things. Last time we talked, we found out that we had yoga in common, that you did a type of yoga that I like, restorative. I love yin and restorative. And I noticed on your resume that you do some kind of, something that I've never heard of. Maybe you can talk about it. It sounds very interesting. Trauma-sensitive yoga. Yeah, I've been, um, <laughs> I've been teaching trauma-sensitive yoga now for actually, I think, almost exactly three years. I teach it at a, at a hospital in Connecticut for people going through addiction and psychiatric illness. And, um, how it's, it's different from your kind of traditional yoga. If you go to a gym or yoga studio and you take a yoga class there, uh, the, how the room is set up, uh, the music, the cueing, uh, all of those things are probably going to be a lot different than a trauma sensitive class. So there are things I do in my class that minimize any kind of reactivation for people who've gone through trauma because trauma is extremely common really in society and then especially at, at this hospital. And so I want to teach my class in a way that allows their nervous system to calm down and relax and they feel better. Uh, I don't want to teach a class where they feel worse and where they're reactivating any of their trauma. So that is... Uh, I don't know how detailed you want me to get, but I'll arrange the the room in a way where they can see the door at all times. Um, I avoid any poses that um, might be kind of more revealing or uncomfortable. Um, I All of my cueing is uh, inviting language. So it's never that you have to do this pose. It's if you like, perhaps, maybe, uh, it's always inviting them and it's always about honoring their body. So if they do it, it doesn't feel great, no problem, you can come out of it. So it's a very, I mean, the restorative yin gentle yoga world uh, kind of worked nicely and eased me into trauma sensitive yoga, I think, with the overall approach. But I find it extremely valuable because it's a, a chance for people to move and breathe and connect to their body a bit, which can be really, really helpful for the nervous system. 
Apple, who's watching live, says she also teaches that type of yoga, which I have never heard of. And I'm wondering how do people find, do they just Google trauma-sensitive yoga and can find a class in their area? That's a, that's a good start. I mean, there, there are trauma, um, informed yoga certification programs. I'm not sure how accessible they are for the general public. If somebody just wants to log in and find a practitioner, I'm not sure if they have that search set up, but doing kind of a general search for your area and trauma yoga, you, you'll probably figure out if there's anything available. There are definitely things available online. So if you want to find a video of a trauma-informed yoga class, I know those exist. I've, I've sent those to people before. Monica saying, maybe you can do a Zoom class and teach this to, to us. We've had a few yoga pe- people on and do, do, you know they've done, a, they've done a class. Apple says, do you have a food garden and is it veganic? Mm-hmm. Ooh, nice question. I uh, So for about 10 or 11 years now, I've been uh, working on mostly organic farms. And that's mainly in an effort to just be around farmers and gardeners and learn as much as I can about how to sustainably produce food. I have not worked directly on a veganic farm. I've read a bit about it and I've tried to learn more about it. And I've asked some farmers about it. Uh, I don't know how uh, scalable it would be, especially globally, um, because essentially you have to start to consider like, how are you going to give the soil everything it needs so it's um, ready to grow nutritious food for us in in a way that we can do that long-term. And there are certain animal byproducts that can be useful in that process. Veganic farmers have shown that obviously uh, it's possible to do it without animal products. I know in um, certain areas where there's just limited resources that, that, that waste from that animal can be a really valuable thing for some of those farming operations. I just recently interviewed Dr. Ron Weiss, who is a plant-based doctor in New Jersey, but also a regenerative farmer. And he really is passionate about how important the soil is. This as it relates even to the microbiome. So it's like, it's like just when you think you got one thing worked out, there's like more things we have to do to save the world, you know? Yeah. I love the idea of regenerative food production. uh, I think it's an idea to start to learn about because I mean, we've, we've produced food in a way that's been so depleting and exploiting for the land and the planet that we we can't even just do it in a way that kind of breaks even we have to do it in a way that is truly regenerative and starts to give back and make things better moving forward. And uh, I'm, I get so excited when I meet uh, some sort of a sustainable regenerative farmer. Yeah, we, we definitely need more of those people moving forward. Yeah. Linda wants to know if you saw a, a new film called Endgame 2050 that came out this week. Came out this week, Endgame 2050. No, I have not. I haven't heard of it either. I, Linda, can you comment where we can find it on Netflix and what, what it's about? So she's a big uh, plant-based uh, advocate educator in Sacramento. Oh, somebody said that New Jersey outlawed plastic bags today. That's great. Oh, wow. Yeah. The and that's an example. I mean, we need uh, not only eaters and consumers to change, but we need help from all all angles. We need local governments to start to shape the path for us. We need food companies to do, do a better job of material sourcing and all that stuff for sure. Kathleen wants to know if you have any pets. <laughs> uh, no, I do not have pets. Uh, I have 
I haven't given pets that much thought. I do. I used to have some mixed feelings about keeping pets, but I don't know if I feel that strongly anymore. Um, but no, I do not have pets. It's okay. So let's see. Uh, Apple says she's just followed your Instagram. Ryan D. Your Instagram has an X in it? No. Uh, inst my Instagram is, I think it's my full name, Ryan Dexter Andrews. So I got Oh, Dexter. Name. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's where the, oh, Dexter. That's what the D is for. I thought the D was for dietitian. <laughs> just kidding. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Did, did, uh, do you have a publisher for this book already? No, I was, uh, I'm debating pitching it to a publisher versus self-publishing. And I don't know, you could probably talk a little bit about this. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that world these days with, I mean, once uh, publishers kind of have their view on how a book should go and they have their editing team and design team, and that can be a really good thing, but sometimes it can present some obstacles in the process of, of creating a book. And uh, one of the big things for me is, I mean, the, getting help marketing is huge. And so if a publisher can help with marketing, I think that's valuable. Otherwise though, it, with the internet and social media, I don't know if it's that critical to have uh, a publisher. I say all that, it, they also help with essentially like quality control and getting reviewers in there to make sure it's accurate, which is really, really important too. Yeah. So apparently this movie is free on Tubi. It's on YouTube, Amazon Prime, Netflix. They're saying it is narr narrated by Moby and Philip Woolen is in it, except nobody's telling us what it's about. <laughs> so it sounds great. I'll put it in the in the list. Yeah, Manica's saying self-published. I, I, I've had offers for publishers, but I, I self-publish both of my books because I, I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> yeah, and that's a thing. I mean... Uh, Sometimes I think the publishing company can add some really valuable uh, aspects and perspectives, but sometimes it might just take you further away from what your original message was. And that's, that's not a good thing. So there's Randy says, it's about how we're killing the planet and we don't have, we won't have any food to eat by 2050, but it's sort of the, the subject of your upcoming book, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, I haven't heard of it. I know I just, I, I had a note to watch a documentary this past weekend called Kiss the Ground that was just released. And uh, it, I watched it yesterday. It's, I think it's really good overall. I mean, the thing with documentaries is that this one I watched yesterday was an hour and 24 minutes. I mean, it's tough to tell the story of food production in an hour and 24 minutes. There's just so much to cover. It's such a complex subject. I think they did a pretty good job. Could they have talked more about certain things? Yes. Did they maybe overemphasize certain things? Probably. Was it maybe biased? Probably. Most documentaries are. Overall, though, I actually think it's worth watching. Uh, I think it was pretty good. I might use it in one of my college classes, which if it hits that criteria, it's usually the sign of a pretty good documentary, pretty balanced documentary. You know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, like, you know, how do you become a dietitian? Because it's, it's like six years, isn't it? And, and they don't really help you to do this plant-based, do they? Uh, no, that, that seems to be changing a bit. So the kind of old, older traditional way of becoming a dietitian is you go and do an undergraduate degree four years long. You focus on nutrition. You meet all your coursework criteria. You go and apply to do an internship. The internship is about a year. And after the internship, you sit down for an exam. Once you pass the exam, you are officially a dietitian. Now, when you become a dietitian and go out into the real world, the knowledge base you're, you have at that point can be completely different 
depending on the school you went to and what courses were there, depending on the internship you went to, depending on your own self-education. And uh, I, I'm hoping that moving forward, we can get more about plant-based nutrition, more about sustainable nutrition and um, how food is produced as well. Because if dietitians are the ones for the most part, helping people with food choices, if they're not considering how the food was produced, that's a massive blind spot. Uh, and if they don't have the adequate knowledge to help people safely and um, healthily eat a plant-based diet, that's a massive blind spot too. So um, yeah, it's, it's not commonplace. I think that is shifting a little bit though. How long have you been plant-based? I mean, I'm assuming you are, I just, maybe I'm being presumptuous. Yeah. I, so like I mentioned in graduate school, that was about 17 years ago. I uh, started to eat a vegetarian and then shortly thereafter a vegan diet. And for about 11 years, I was 100% vegan where I'm talking to my knowledge, no animal products crossed my lips uh, across the board. And that has shifted a little bit in the last few years, mainly just because um, some of the other things I really value now at some times the different values can kind of butt heads. Not a lot. If you followed me around and watched what I was eating, you'd be like, Oh yeah, it's pretty much a vegan diet. But uh, in certain situations, um, dairy and eggs can, they work their way into my diet at times. Um, that's after, I know not sure who your audience is. I know some people are going to hear that and think that's terrible news. But um, it's, it's not without a lot of forethought uh, that went into that decision. What, you know, have you seen since, since you've been eating plant-based or primarily plant-based, just an increase in the amount of processed food that people were eating, both plant-based and not? Processed food uh, is one of the elephants in the room with nutrition in the United States, really globally. It's over half of our calories are coming from really processed foods. And this doesn't really discriminate in terms of what dietary pattern you're following and whether it's vegetarian, vegan, paleo, keto, whatever the food companies are getting involved in all these dietary patterns. And so processed foods are now finding their way into all sorts of different dietary patterns. And I don't, I mean, there obviously are minimal levels of processing that I'm extremely grateful for. I love frozen broccoli. I love rolled oats. Um, I love my, you know, shelled almonds and things like that. Wonderful. Uh, however, we've obviously taken it to the level of uh, a breakfast cereal aisle an entire aisle and pizza pockets and cookies and crackers and the list goes on to where that's, that's what people are eating. I mean, that's the foundation of our diet is ultra processed foods. And that's, that's a really big problem, not only for our health and disease prevention, but think about the raw ingredients as well in some of these really processed foods, added sugars. Where's that sugar coming from? Sugar beets, sugar cane. What about the fertilizers used? How is that handling soil and runoff? Um, what about the oils, soybean oil, um, corn oil? I mean, we these oils and sugars are coming from somewhere and often it's produced in a way that's really, really bad for the planet. So it's, it's a lose-lose. I mean, it's bad for the planet to produce these items 
it's not so good for us to consume them a lot of them on a regular basis so i'm it's a massive issue and it's that's one of the reasons it's in my top four or my top five of the five things we can do to eat to prevent prevent the apocalypse well, I find that people that generally eat these processed foods and now they're even calling them ultra processed foods. A lot of the people is that they, they're not eating them occasionally. Like, you know, in situations like, wow, I was, you know, my hit a flat tire and they went to, you know, the gas station and I bought these bag of pretzels. They're eating them as, as the majority of their calories. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a normal, it's quite abnormal right now. If, um, you don't eat many of them. It's actually, you know, if you go somewhere and you turn down the processed food, it's like, oh, wow, that guy, why is he turning that down? But that's, they're just, they've inundated all aspects of our society. You know, you go to work, you go to school, you go to the store. The Most people are eating a lot of processed foods. That's, that's where it's at. I mean, that's where the money is to be made as well in the food industry. Exactly. And a lot of them are owned by the tobacco companies. I, I think that the word processing almost isn't an accurate description because hummus is processed, but there's nothing wrong with eating hummus. You know what I mean? But so it's, I think it's the refined part because so many people say, Oh, I'm on a whole food plant-based diet, but if you're eating sugar and what is sugar, if you're eating sugar, flour, and oil, those aren't whole foods. Yeah. Uh, that's why there's been some debate in the nutrition world about how can we give, uh, an accurate label. So that's why ultra processed foods, you probably hear that or highly processed foods, because they're trying to designate uh, cinnamon toast crunch versus hummus. You know, they're trying to, not all processing is created equal. Some of it can be really valuable and useful for our health and nutrition. So it's, it's really astounding to me when you just, you can even do like a personal experiment, go to the grocery store and just kind of kick back and watch people's carts it's a lot of processed foods. That's, that's a big part of our diet. You can almost see, it's almost like you look at their cart before them and you kind of know their size. It's, 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 it's crazy, but I do that. I'll look at the cart first and I'll think, and then, yeah. It's like the cover of my book. It's like my, cover uh, of my old book. I have oh, the, yes. uh, the, they're looking at each other. One has the cover. Yeah, it's right here. Exactly. I love this book and I love the cartoons. Those, you know, those cartoons remind me of the cartoons from the, uh, the, the New Yorker magazine. Oh yeah. 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 Car- I, Cartoons were always uh, something I wanted to include in that book, and it, it ended up creating a lot more time and energy and expense, but it, I think it was worth it in the end. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to find my favorite one the next time um, I have you answer a question because there's one in here that's absolutely hilarious, but I'd like to get to this question by, where did it go? Uh, uh, so sorry, it is from Alicia. How, is, how to regulate overeating? And of course, I'm not losing weight. And then she says, I'm eating a no fat plant-based, but I'm always starving and eating so much. See, a lot of people are commenting she's probably not eating enough starch because to me, that's the key to satiety, the potatoes, rice, and beans. They stick to your ribs. Uh, so she said she's not eating, a, she is eating a no fat? Yeah, she said, uh, well, well I, don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to eat a no fat diet because everything has fat. You know, I, I'm guessing a no added fat diet, like a, like a McDougal style diet. Oh, okay, I got it. Well- Okay. Uh, A lot of different ways I could respond to this. I mean, so there are some kind of more physiological nutrition related aspects of over-consuming food. So that would be uh, eating enough food, having satisfying meals and not just really small like snacks throughout the day, making sure I, I'm not a 
I hope I don't offend anybody. I'm not a huge fan of really low fat diets, vegan or otherwise, uh, including foods like tree nuts and seeds and avocados and uh, certain types of oils and things like that, I think are okay. And I think they can help a little bit with satiety, protein, uh, plenty of legumes, tofu, tempeh, split peas, uh, whole grains, certain types of whole grains are a little bit higher in protein. So ensuring enough protein, ensuring enough fat, eating enough food, those to me are kind of the physiological surface level modifications that can help feel more, uh, help us feel more satisfied and prevent overeating. The other angle though, I would say is, and I'm responding to this, I, I don't know anything about the person who asked the question, but there's a, there's a whole other aspect to why someone might overeat that might not be related to the nutrient content of the food. So uh, if somebody is eating food and it's bringing them like a disproportionate amount of joy in their life and they're otherwise they're, they don't have much joy in their life and they're really relying on food to bring that joy, that can lead to overeating certain uh, living situations and how we stock our houses with foods can change our eating patterns. Uh, so, I mean, there are a lot of different things that can contribute to over or under eating. Um, hopefully it's just kind of a modify a few foods, macro, macronutrients, but it can be um, something a bit, uh, a bit bigger than that. I'll also mention this before I ramble too long on this response, but uh, a history of restrictive dieting can also kind of keep us in this cognitive dietary restraint mindset where um, we just kind of always have this drive to, to eat because we've had such a low intake for so long. So all these different things can contribute to our eating patterns, how much we eat. I found my favorite cartoon from your book. I'm going to, so if it's okay, I'm going to show it and read it. This was, this was, I think this is why I bought the book because I must have opened to this page. It says it's a, it's a doctor talking to his patient and it said, she, he says, it's partially glandular and it's partially the 8,500 calories a day. <laughs> yeah, that I, I first saw that cartoon actually at a presentation at uh, the, the VegFest they used to have in Pennsylvania in Johnstown. Oh, Vegetarian Summerfest. Yeah, the Vegetarian Summerfest. I saw that at a presentation at Vegetarian Summerfest from Jeff Novick. Do you know Jeff Novick? He's another yeah. dietitian. And I scribbled it down and I think I even emailed him and asked him where, where did you find this cartoon? So I, I had to have that in my, in my book. It's, it's really funny. So, you know, one of the things I'm hearing a lot about from other dietitians, even ones that aren't plant-based is this intermittent fasting. That seems to be like the biggest thing. And some people are really taking it to the degree where they're eating only one meal a day. And I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I know that Dr. Goldham, who's going to be on the show Wednesday, isn't a fan of OMAD. He feels people should eat, eat at least two, but they still can do the intermittent fasting. But some of these people are narrowing their windows to like two and four hours a day. And I'm just wondering where you stand on this whole topic of intermittent fasting. I don't, generally speaking, I don't love intermittent fasting. Uh, I have a couple responses here. So one response is, and I mentioned this in my previous book, a kind of a traditional American pattern of eating is these limited windows of eating. So it's the skip breakfast for whatever reason, maybe have a smallish lunch. And then usually in a tighter window later in the day, a lot of food is consumed. 
and then the pattern kind of repeats itself. So it's some Americans are chronically under eating, but then they have these acute little periods of time where they're just eating a lot. And that can kind of be the pattern of intermittent fasting sometimes. So I don't, I don't like it from that perspective. Um, it, my other kind of angle and how I would respond to this is I like the general idea of giving your body a break between dinner and breakfast. I mean, I think the idea of eating until late into the night and then forcing yourself to eat breakfast if you're not hungry, I don't think that's a necessarily a good idea for overall health. So allowing maybe a 12 hour gap between dinner and breakfast makes sense, gives your body a break, uh, allows your body to process what you previously consumed, start to build up hunger cues for the next meal. Uh, so I like that gap, like a 12 hour gap, maybe 14 if you're not hungry in the morning usually. I am even um, more against intermittent fasting for women, even more so than men. I've seen more men maybe have some sort of uh, success, I guess you could say, quote unquote, with intermittent fasting. But women, I just feel like most of what I'm seeing is not good. And it's probably related to how their bodies are a bit more sensitive to changes in calorie intake and reproductive hormones. So not a huge fan and don't frankly, I frankly don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's like a, a national initiative we need to set for success with our health and eating. Uh, if somebody absolutely loves it and they swear by it, great. I think that's important too, is finding what works for you. Yeah, I feel like if people would just learn to eat when hungry and stop when full, they wouldn't need intermittent fasting. But the problem is, is these highly processed foods they're eating, there's no off switch with them. Those are... Hunger cues, learning when you're hungry, when you're satisfied is one of the most valuable skills you can ever develop. And part two, like you just said, certain foods are specifically designed to not, <laughs> to not make us feel satisfied after eating them. So if the diet is really, really heavy with processed foods, it's going to be tough to notice, uh, notice those signals for sure. Well, even with, even with oil, they've done studies where they've given people the exact same meal and one had 500 calories from oil and they didn't detect any more fullness from the oil. Yeah. And that's when things like the volume can matter. Uh, gastric distension plays a role in how full we feel. Yeah. It's, and that's the beauty of all this. I mean, there are a lot of different variables that come into play with, with our eating and our food choices. I knew this question would come. It comes on almost every show. And Diane says, well, what is your daily meal plan like? Oh yeah, nice question. Uh, it changes a little bit throughout the year, but I tend to kind of go in, in patterns. Um, I, I generally like some sort of a shake or smoothie to start the day for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's tastes, it tastes pretty good. It's full of nutrition. It's fairly uh, easy and quick to make. Uh, I can consume it while I'm kind of getting started with some of my work tasks for the day. So that's, and I'll, the nice thing about the world of shakes and smoothies is that there are, there's a lot of room for variety with, within that category. So that's usually what I'll have, not hundred percent of the time, but mostly, uh, lunch is usually something like a salad or soup based and a lot of vegetables, usually some sort of a legume. I love lentils. I love tofu and tempeh. Uh, that's when I'll also mix in some nuts and seeds as well. Some sort of a good dressing or avocado or something like that. Something it's satisfying. It's full of nutrition. 
Uh, I can prepare a lot of it ahead of time so I can kind of quickly assemble it on most days. And those are pretty routine meals for me. Dinner is where I explore usually a bit more variety and I might connect with my wife and we'll like prepare something or try a new recipe or go to an old favorite or use a food that's in season or something like that. And I mean, a lot of different variety there. Um, Indian food, Mexican food, soups and sandwiches, all sorts of different things. Um, but like I said, I mean, it's a lot of vegetables, a lot of beans, um, a lot of whole grains, a little bit of nuts and seeds. So it's, uh, it's a lot of plants. And um, I, I've really grown to enjoy that way of eating. I mean, if you told me when I was 15 years old, like that's how you'd be eating in 20 years, <laughs> uh, that sounds terrible. I love it. I look forward to it. It tastes good. It's satisfying. Uh, helps me maintain my health and well-being. So it's, it's a good way to eat. That's great. Cindy says, I really like that he speaks of what is realistic for most people. So we have a question from Anne. Is there a vegetable that helps reduce fat in the body? And Victoria says, any best foods to lower blood pressure? Uh, so vegetables specifically to help lowering uh, body fat levels? No, not necessarily. I mean, that's that's another one of those questions that's a bit difficult for me to answer because body composition changes uh, are dependent on so many factors. I mean, in general, I'd say probably the more vegetables you're eating, the more that's probably going to help with body composition and, and lowering body fat and improving muscle mass. Uh, but I wouldn't say there's one specifically. And what was the second part of that question? Any, any foods to lower blood pressure? I think just, oh, yeah, yeah. Foods to lower blood pressure. So um, blood pressure is a really, really big deal. And uh, that constant uh, pressure is really, really harmful for our vessels and our organs. And uh, I was actually just responding to a, a question the other day about this. And about 13% of all deaths globally are in some way related to high blood pressure. So it's a big public health issue. In terms of what we can do to uh, with our diet to modify it, uh, eating a lot more of a plant-based diet actually can really, really help. Some of the plant-based foods can have specific therapeutic properties and help with like blood vessel elasticity and things like that. Um, and the nice thing about plant-based foods as well is that they contain generally a lot of potassium and this can help to regulate fluid balance in the body because most diets have a lot of sodium and not much potassium. And this can further drive high blood pressure. When you're eating more of a plant-based diet, that skews and your sodium goes lower and your potassium goes higher. And that can help kind of bring fluid balance a little bit more into like a homeostatic place. And um, so blood pressure is very important. Eating more of a plant-based diet is probably going to be a really good idea for that, along with so many other things, movement and stress and sleep for sure. Yeah. And so Sue says, any foods to lower triglycerides? I think the answer is almost always vegetables, you know? You know, and I mean, it, it, it kind of, maybe you can relate. I mean, you, you work in this world for a long time and you don't want to sound like a broken record, but there's a lot of value in eating minimally processed plant foods. And again, not everybody's going to adopt hundred percent. I don't think they need to, but if we can get to a much higher intake of beans and whole grains and vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds that 
just checks all the boxes pretty much for all the chronic diseases that we have. And now, again, I want to be fair here too. It doesn't guarantee disease prevention. Um, it just stacks the odds in our favor of preventing those diseases. So somebody can set out early in life and start eating a plant-based diet and they potentially still might get a chronic disease. But if you really want to stack the odds in your favor, starting early, eating a lot of plant-based foods, that tends to be a really, really uh, health promoting thing to do. I agree. Manica says, how does he feel about eating for fuel before a workout? For example, I cycle 25 miles very early. Do I do so on an empty stomach or eat oatmeal an hour before? And again, when I return home, I, I find this to be really highly individualized. Uh, most people I've worked with over the years kind of start to do some trial and error and figure out what works best for them. Some people feel fantastic training first thing in the morning and they actually feel worse if they try to eat before they train and then vice versa. Same, same thing happens in the other direction. And it's hard to argue physiologically and scientifically for the other thing. If someone is immediately noticing poor results. So, uh, I, I think whatever you can do with your nutrition that can help to maximize your training, allow you to feel like you're not you know, bloated and digesting food while you're training allows you to feel like you have a lot of energy. And over time too, you're noticing a pattern where you're maintaining muscle or gaining muscle, if that's a goal and you have energy and you're recovering, that's all good stuff. Those are all metrics you can use. Uh, if those aren't going well, then maybe experimenting in the other direction could be useful, but I, I definitely think not getting, not creating a, an uncomfortable training environment is very, very important because it's the worst thing for any, any active people, if you are e eating and then you're digesting and trying to move and it doesn't feel good and it ruins your movement, it's not, not a good situation. So maybe trial and error experiment, but a lot of individualization with that one. Great. Is there any, looking back, is there anything you learned in dietetic school that you would challenge today? Oh, yes. And I mean, a lot. That's for a couple of reasons though. I think Nutrition science in general is a pretty, pretty young science. And when I was going through school, I mean, that's almost, that's about 20 years ago now. So two decades, I mean, a lot's changed. We've learned, learned a lot in the last 20 years. And so I wouldn't, I don't think I had any instructors or curriculum uh, content or anything like that. That was misguiding me intentionally or anything like that. I just think the picture wasn't as comprehensive as it is now. Uh, so I, I mean, where to start? There are all sorts of things I would, that are different from that, that period of time. Do you, uh, where, where do you stand on food addiction? Do you ever work with people that feel that that's what the problem is? Yes. Uh, I have, I don't, I don't have a firm stance on it these days. I used to be a little bit more into that world when I was doing a lot more counseling, maybe seven years ago or so. I mean, generally speaking, addiction is when you're repeatedly engaging in a behavior and it's um, jeopardizing your health or others around you. And it's kind of this compulsive thing. Is there a degree of that with certain eating patterns? I think so. I mean, the 
it gets a little bit gray to me when you're talking about is it certain is it added sugars well is it does it have to be part of something else does it have to have salt and oil as well or is it just the added sugar that's the addictive component so i think pinpointing like what the addictive component is can be a little bit difficult oftentimes it's combinations of things like in these processed foods uh and i also think there are just other factors that play into it i mean i've worked with people who for a period of their life they would say i have an addiction to food but then after going through some introspective work and kind of looking at food a bit differently, they no longer feel that way. And food is kind of more of a neutral thing and they no longer feel good after they eat that food they used to be addicted to. So I think things can change. Whereas I don't know if that's quite as possible with other substances. Um, but I mean, all that being said, if somebody is suspecting they have an addiction, then it's probably a, a big enough problem in their life that it's worth addressing on some level. What, however you categorize it, it's probably worth yeah. working with somebody, connecting with a therapist or a dietitian and kind of working to troubleshoot it a bit. Yeah, nice. You have, you have a very nice voice. I bet your Shavasana is very relaxing. Thank you. I've had people uh, tell me that before. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, very. Kathleen and others want to know, do you eat sugar or maple syrup or salt? I do. I, I, I make a pretty intentional point though, to not eat a lot of added sugars, really no matter whether it's straight like white sugar or um, maple syrup or coconut sugar or whatever it is. I try to keep it to a minimum. I mean, if I make granola or something and there's a little bit in there, okay. Uh, uh, if I make a dressing and there's a little bit in there, okay. Uh, if I want a dessert and I really am like, ah, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to have it. Okay. I, I try not to... I try to make sure it's not a big part of my, my overall consumption though, on a regular basis. Um, salt. I don't, I'm not quite as worried about salt because most of the food I eat, I prepare at home. And so I'm always kind of seeing what salt is going into it. I feel like I have a bit more control and most people, not always, but most people when they're overdoing salt, it's usually because of they're, because they're eating a lot of processed foods. Processed foods tend to have a lot of salt. So they kind of have no recognition of they're just eating the processed foods and all of a sudden their sodium levels are very high each day. Um, so I don't worry too much about it, but uh, I'm also not making really salt heavy recipes. So definitely two things to be aware of. You don't want to, you don't want to overdo it, but if, if totally minimizing them drives you absolutely insane, then <laughs> building in, building in a bit of sugar can be helpful. And we need a certain amount of sodium for for health and living. Great. Awana says, what kind of foods do you introduce to a baby first? Oh, you know, I, I am not, I love that question. And I love, I love this about nutrition. There are so many different angles to it. I'm definitely not the person to ask about uh, infancy feeding, pediatric nutrition. That has been a very, very, very small part of my overall nutrition journey. There was a, a brief period of time well, once during my internship and then once later on where I was working on an article for Precision Nutrition about it. Other than that, though, my brain has not been processing that world of information for a couple of years at this point. So I'm probably not the best person to, to respond. Sorry about that. All right. Here, I like this question from Marie. How do you respond to the lectin oxalate anti-nutrient question? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, what's a good concise response for this? Um, I'm not overly concerned with lectins and oxalates for most people. Um, if somebody has a history of kidney stones, I'm more concerned with oxalates for them. Uh, if someone has an autoimmune disease, I might be more concerned about lectins for them. From a general public health perspective, I think they're mostly a non-issue. Uh, I say that because most people aren't eating a lot of foods rich in lectins, at least. I guess there's probably an argument to be in for oxalates, but uh, a lot of people don't have a lot of lectins in the diet. And I think you can also make a case that lectins can offer some protective uh, mechanisms as well in the body. So, I mean, one of the things I always remind myself in the world of nutrition is that all foods have pros and cons. So take the most perfect food you can think of, the most nutritious food you can think of. There's a downside to that food. I promise you there is. There's some compound, there's something that accumulates in that food while it's growing. Something about it, you could make a case and say, that's a problem. Um, it's about finding the foods that offer more pros than cons. Uh, I mean, beans and whole grains and nuts and seeds and vegetables and fruits, they offer a lot of pros and very little cons. Still cons, but few cons. And versus the traditional American diet is full of cons. It's full of a lot of added sugar, a lot of added salt, a lot of meat, um, and just overconsumption in general. So those are like the big rocks to address and kind of the big foundational issues. So I don't want to totally push it aside and say, that doesn't matter. I think in some situations, in some health conditions, it might matter, but generally speaking, it, it's not a, not top of mind for me. Great. Alexi says, when did you first become aware of animal rights? I started to think about animals, uh, in grad school. I was about 22 and I was taking a class learning about using animals in research. We had to do that as part of our graduate school training because some students were using um, mice and rats in their studies. And the more I learned about it, the more uncomfortable I was, and especially for certain types of research that didn't seem very important to me. Uh, justifying taking an animal's life, I had a hard time reconciling that. And that it was a switch that was flipped. And from that I can remember the, the day when I started to think about this because I was talking to a lab assistant about it and she asked me if I ate meat. I said, yeah. She said, well, you're involving animals in your decisions every day. And so that, that from that moment on, I started to think about how we treat animals, um, whether it's zoos, pets, the food system, what can we do to treat them well, um, not cause unnecessary suffering and harm, um, and I guess mostly allowing them to exist for their own, their own um, well-being and their own intent. I mean, I, I don't deep dive into the world of animal rights a lot, but I, over the years I have, I've given it a, a, a fair amount of consideration. That's great. Here's a question from, thank you for thinking about the animals though, of course. That's great. It, Julie, it, Julie it, says, oh yeah, go ahead, say, say. A, a mind-boggling statistic that 
uh, I, I continually think of all the time when it comes to animals. In the history of planet Earth, uh, there have been 100, 107 billion human beings that have ever lived on planet Earth. 107 billion, okay? That's a number you're like, 107 billion? How do I fathom that number? We are slaughtering that many animals for food every 18 months. So, I mean, the, the number of animals that are being killed in the food system, mostly chickens, is astronomical. It's so hard to consider. And I know when I heard that, it helped me put it a little bit in perspective. Like, oh, that's how many human beings have ever lived on planet Earth and we're killing that many animals every 18 months. That is, I can't get behind that. Well, thank you. Uh, Julie says, does he feel that people can be successful with weight loss with some amounts of nut seeds and avocado? And if so, how much? Uh, definitely. I actually think they can be extremely valuable uh, in the diet related to satiety and nutrition and nutrient absorption and overall well-being. I don't have a, a strict guideline on it. I mean, if I'm talking with somebody and they're really active and young and they need a lot of extra energy, then they're probably going to benefit from more. And if I have somebody who's older and not moving as much and not as much muscle mass and stuff like that, probably not going to need as much, but I think they, they can be valuable additions into the diet. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to leave this person hanging with like absolutely no ballpark recommendation. Um, at the same time, uh, I, I hesitate to give like specific macronutrient percentage recommendations. So I mean, eh, a few servings a day, see how you feel. I mean, I, I have seen problems over the years because I've been in the plant-based world now for almost, almost 20 years, I guess. And uh, I think people who really go strict on the no fat, I think that can present some problems long-term. Short-term, I think it can maybe, it can maybe offer some therapeutic value for cardiovascular conditions. But if somebody really wants to be eating this way for a long time and feel good, I think introducing some of those whole food fat sources can be really important. Well, this is where we disagree and that's okay. Cause I'm, I'm a strict, oh. yeah. And it's okay. Cause Very you know, it, no, it's okay. Cause I, I, that's the thing. I mean, people think like that I have to have people on the show that hundred percent agree with me on everything. And that's not what it's about. So I, I, for me, and this is why I think people are different. I could not lose any weight, even lowering my fat to one ounce of nuts a day. I couldn't. I don't know why, but I think we're, I think we vary genetically differently. And then when I did a strict Esselstyn McDougall with no added fat, and by the way, I do get my fatty acid levels checked every single year at my doctor. And they're as high as you can imagine. I can send you the results because I eat so many greens uh, for me. And I feel that food addiction is real. Like they say, one drink, one drunk. I, I just cannot do it. I, there's something about the fat in food that just lights my brain up that I can't eat one Brazil nut or one ounce of nuts or a half an ounce of seeds. I do use chia seeds in dressings, but this it's been eight years now. And so I'm watching it very carefully. And I have a doctor at True North as well as a lifestyle medicine doctor. And we just check my blood every year. And so for me, this is what works. So I, I, you know, I'm, I, at this point, I'm afraid to even try to reintroduce it. <laughs> so, yeah. because I feel so well and I just love my food, which is, you know, primarily most of my calories are from starch with my, most of my volume from vegetables and some fruit. So, you know, I, I if I had to break it down, I'd probably eat uh, two to three pounds of vegetables a day, three pounds of starch and about a pound of fruit. And I'm full and it's two meals a day. And 
you know, I, you know, cause I had a lifelong history of discordant eating, both, right. you know, bulimia and anorexia. So for me, this is what works, but I think people should try it one way or the other. Like don't make a decision, try it, try it. If it doesn't work for you, try something else, but don't necessarily copy what somebody else does because it worked for them. It may not work for you. Right. I love that. Two things I love about that. I love the self-experimentation. I love that you're um, doing it responsibly. You're not just randomly doing it. You're working with a doctor and you're staying on top of things. And uh, it's, I mean, it's individualization is a big part of nutrition. I think the more I learn about it, the, the more difficult it is for me to make kind of blanket public health recommendations and say, it's all this or all that, or none of this, or none of that. Some people, maybe it's good. Some people, maybe it's not so good. So I love that consideration. So thanks for Thanks for having me on your show, even though I don't uh, agree with you on everything. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, you, you know, like if somebody was like, uh, you know, did vivisection, they're not going to be on my show. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, there's a degree, but no, absolutely. Because I think I want people to find the people that resonate with them and that works for them. And you have like a more moderate approach and a style that, that, may not work for me, but there's somebody watching this like, yeah, I can really get behind what he says. And, you know, I'm never going to be vegan, but I think, you know, so, so that's why, you know, we want to have different people. Otherwise it would just be me every day, which I think would be boring or me and Goldhammer, which would be boring, but might be fun for me. But, you know, so what uh, Apple is, is, is doing a quote that I, I have said many times. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I tell people do the least restrictive program you can do that will give you the results you want. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And, and so, but for me, it doesn't feel restrictive. That's the thing, but for other people, it might, you know, so anyway, so let's see if I find any more questions. We're getting at the top of the time. So when can we look forward to your next book? If I don't have a date set, it's in the process of uh, editing and layout and everything right now. But um, I would say if you're interested and uh, I'd go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, I say that I send newsletters about once every year. So you won't be, I won't send a lot of newsletters to you. Uh, I'll let you know though when the book is out and ready. So that's probably the best way to stay on top of it. Well, Maybe connect with me on social media. I'll probably mention it there too. Well, that's great. And and then if they want, in the meantime, if they can't wait, then I, I really still recommend this book. It's 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 humorous. It's not hard to read. You can read it, you know, in an hour or two. And again, just the cartoons was worth it. Well, it's great catching up with you again. I hope it won't be another two years, but when the book comes out, let me know. We'll do this again and tell people to uh, to, to to check it out. Yeah. Thank you so much. I love, uh, I love the work you're doing. Good to see you again. Well, thank you. And happy anniversary to you and your wife. Take care, Ryan. Thank you. Okay. Everybody. Thanks so much for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow. Who is my guest tomorrow? You think I would have this memorized? Oh, Dr. Benjamin Banulis. You're going to love him. He's brand new to me too. Take care, Ryan. Thanks again.